This is the Center for Strategic and International Studies Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. Welcome to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. I'm Beverly Kirk here at CSIS in Washington. Be sure to follow us on Twitter. You can find me at Beverly Kirk, and our Smart Women, Smart Power handle is at Smart Women. China is focusing a lot of high-level attention on its digital economy and information communications technology. The reason? The government's leaders believe they are key to China's economic development and modernization. My guest is Sam Sachs, a senior fellow in the Technology Policy Program here at CSIS, where she is researching and writing about China's digital economy and its cyber governance system. Sam, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Beverly. I should say this is the second time I've recorded a podcast. The first time, I actually brought my two-month-old son into the studio. (laughs) He was just born, and Bonnie invited me to come and talk about cyber issues. And I said, sure, do you have someone that can look after my son while I do the podcast? So it's great to be back here. It's great to have you back. And I should clarify for our listeners that Bonnie is Bonnie Glazer, who runs our China Power Project. Yes. Well, you just released a, a report very recently on China's digital economy. And just to throw out some numbers from that report, there are 751 million internet users in China, right? Correct. Um, Mobile users in China are growing at an annual rate of about 10%, at least over the past year, which is amazing. And then half of the users in China are paying for products and services on their mobile phones, which is incredible. Uh, Talk about what is driving this growth in China. Sure. I think that this story is both a top-down and a bottom-up story. We've seen a lot of high-level focus from China's leaders under the administration of President Xi Jinping on the digital economy. And I can talk more about what that means in a moment. But this is also bottom-up. You're seeing small startups. You're seeing large Chinese private internet companies um, that are really leading to you know, a tremendous amount of entrepreneurship, of creativity in these sectors. And it's an exciting time to be following that in China. You know, I think in the China case, we're seeing some characteristics that are unique to China that are really behind some of this growth. We have a large population, which leads to a large user base when it comes to the internet, to mobile. We have um, relatively new ubiquitous fixed mobile networks, large numbers of students that are coming out trained in computer sciences, and you have a fast adoption and assimilation rate of new technologies. And so the combination of these factors is really contributing to an extremely dynamic environment in the digital economy. You did an event recently on this same topic. What were some of the takeaways from the event uh, on all of these issues? So we held an event, and I thought it was exciting because we had some folks come in to talk about China's digital economy that aren't your sort of normal Washington policy folks. So we had fly in from China the chief scientist for IoT from Alibaba. Um, We had the managing director of one of the largest venture capital firms that's really been on the front lines investing in China's internet companies. 
We had someone from OFO, which not many people know is a dockless bike sharing company. Many people don't even realize is a Chinese company. And their innovation is they, they instead of having to park your bike at a dock, you can pick it up and leave it anywhere. And because of the tracking, the mobile technology involved, the smart lock system, you're able to do this. And they can track bikes and leave bikes around the city. Mm-hmm. So we had voices that were in the conversation that are really, I think, on the front lines driving the internet sector in China and shaping sort of what the next generation of this is going to look like. I had three main takeaways from the event that I wanted to share with you all today. You know, the first is that I think there has been this conception for a long time that China's internet companies have just been copying Western models, that you have clones, essentially, of successful Western internet companies in China. That's not true anymore. You have truly disruptive, innovative companies coming out of China. The second one is that we're seeing a real strong global push. So I think there's an idea that Chinese internet companies can either exist successfully in China or they can exist overseas, but really not both. And we're beginning to see more convergence where you have Chinese internet companies like OFO that are going abroad and 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 localizing to markets that are very different from China. Now, they're going to see some tremendous challenges in doing this. And we can talk more about what some of those challenges are. The third takeaway I had from the event is that I think there are a lot of misconceptions about data privacy and data security in China. And um, I think there's a missing part of the conversation about how much debate is actually going on in China. I think people think that you have these Chinese internet companies that are essentially agents of a Chinese surveillance state. And that's there's a lot more nuance there, and we can talk about that as well. I just want to follow up immediately on that on that point because privacy of data is such a huge issue in the U.S. and the concerns about identity theft or theft of information. And my question to you is: Is China concerned about that at all, or do they have a different view of? data and the rules surrounding privacy than what a U.S. or a Western audience might might have? And how might that impact the companies in China who are now looking to work on a, and operate on a global stage? It's a great question. There is less concern about data privacy in China than there is in the United States. And I think that that, in some ways, has contributed to the growth of some of China's internet companies that do rely on things like clicks and advertising models. However, and this is the big however, we are seeing growing concerns about data privacy in China. Um, Most recently, there's been a lot of outcry from Chinese users um, who who have felt that their data has been improperly used, that they didn't receive notification from Chinese internet companies. So for example, Ant Financial, which is the financial arm of Alibaba, um, issued a public apology because users realized that they were automatically opting into a system in which their data would be used as part of a credit scoring system that Ant Financial runs. So Ant issued an apology. We've seen similar types of um, things come out of like Baidu, for example, just in the last couple weeks. But I think the thing that's missing from the public conversation about this is it's not just the users that are pushing back against these 
um, monolithic companies that are then automatically giving all of their data to the Chinese government. In fact, we're, I see, and I've had a lot of conversations with folks in the ground on, you know, inside these companies on this, there is discussion inside the companies. So there's not consensus, for example, on how user data is processed, is stored on the kinds of consent agreements that users opt into when they use these products. Um, and this is actually very much in flux. So you have people at companies like Tencent, like Alibaba, that are work that are debating with the government now, what should this data privacy and security system actually look like? Um, and it's part of an evolving new cybersecurity legal framework that is very much under debate right now. You mentioned that um Ant Financial issued an apology, but did that force any kind of policy change? Or did they just apologize to the people who were upset that their information was used in a way that they had not granted permission? It did. I've heard that they've since set up a specific office devoted to personal information um, protection issues. And I think that the, the issue initially was that there was a default option that was selected, and I think they've changed the way that that's working. But again, I think the misconception is it's not like all of a sudden there's been this user outcry and now these companies are in a reactive mode playing catch up. In fact, for a long time, for months, even maybe one to two years, folks at these companies have been engaged in these kinds of debates already with the government. And so it's not like it's now they're trying to just play catch up to this current issue, although I think this is certainly going to be an impetus for further action. And this argument sounds very much like the one that is going on here in the U.S. over over issues of data privacy, which people might be surprised to learn it's also going on in China. Absolutely. And in fact, Chinese media regularly refers to the discussion here. So when the case occurred with Apple um, and the, the, the dispute about whether to unlock the iPhone for uh, access to law enforcement, that was closely debated in China and is cited in a lot of Chinese media, media articles as well. So I think there's much more overlap than people give it credit for. Now, again, to be sure, you know, data privacy is very different in China. And traditionally, users, I think, have been accustomed to having much less of it and being OK with that than they are here. So I'm not I don't want to say that they're exactly the same, just to add a little more texture to the story. And the challenge will be when companies that operate in China take their business abroad and having to uh, acclimate to the way that other users are accustomed to, that's going to be a, a, a challenge that I, I'm assuming we'll see them have to grapple with. Exactly. And I think that's one of the main drivers here. So we can't forget that companies like Alibaba and Tencent, these are global companies that are actively pursuing global markets. And so in doing so, for example, when they go to the EU, they're going to have to comply with data privacy requirements in the EU. They're going to have to have their users feel assured that their data is being stored. And they cannot do that if there's this idea that all of the government, the data is going to the Chinese government. I think there is an assumption that the Chinese government can have access to any data that it wants at any time. And it's not so simple. Um, I think that there are frameworks that are evolving over how that data is handled, who's giving it to what. Um, and it's not as simple as I think people think it is. Let me uh, shift directions just a bit because I read an article in Fortune that said that China's digital economy growth may soon outpace the growth of its traditional economy. And if so, that is a huge shift. Um, 
what's the potential impact of, of something like that happening? There's a concept um, in China known as um, online or offline merging to online or online merging to offline, OMO. And it's this idea that the government as well as the private sector are focused on um, having the internet unlock productivity in the offline or what they call the real economy. And so that's where you see so much growth in areas like ride sharing, in e-commerce, um, in in these sort of super apps is what where which bundle a lot of services together so that people are using their smartphones to interact with 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 the world in ways that are sort of bringing the you know online and offline economies together. And I think the government sees this as a new engine of growth as they shift away from an older model where you had low end manufacturing. They want to shift more to sort of high value-added sources of growth um, in the in the economy, and OMO or O2O is seen as the way to do that. So you know, when I just anecdotally, when I'm in China, I am using my mobile phone for so much more than I'm using it here. Get, dive deeper on that and explain how how you mean that. So here's an example. I was in China in December and. I got to the airport, I went to get cash from the ATM, and I walked away from the ATM leaving and left my ATM card in the machine. Didn't realize it until about three days later, and I went, oh, well, thank goodness I can just use WeChat to pay for everything while I'm here. WeChat is an app that is sort of ubiquitous in China. It's, it's owned by Tencent. It's both, it's, it's, it's sort of a combination of Facebook, Uber, your bank account, entertainment, anything you want, you can kind of access it through this app. And there's a payment system in it. And then there's a QR code. And so it was really not a problem that I didn't have my ATM card because I just used WeChat and scanned my phone everywhere I needed to pay. I don't, I don't even have Apple Pay set up on my phone here in the US, right? So this is something I do in China, but I don't do here. Now, here's where we get into the issue of can these companies actually go global? WeChat is really not set up for foreigners. So in order to get money into my WeChat account, I had to have a friend send money via PayPal to a friend who had access to a Chinese bank account and a Chinese ID card. She then sent me Chinese currency into my WeChat account. I couldn't just directly put US dollars in. And there are many blog posts, if you look, about how difficult it is for foreigners to actually use a lot of these payment apps because we don't have a Chinese national ID. So I think if these platforms are going to go global, they're going to really have to make them more accessible to non-Chinese, because right now, they're just not. Sam Wells, China's internet companies be successful expanding globally? It's a great question. There are some that argue that China's internet companies have come up in a closed ecosystem where they have benefited disproportionately from state support, that it will be impossible for them to really be competitive in global markets. I think that one thing we need to think about is the specific sectors and the specific regions that we're talking about when it comes to global expansion. Take the, the example of fintech. We talked, for example, about paying for things on WeChat and how easy that was to do in China. So one question I have is, 
you know, there are factors in China, demographics, regulations that might make fintech more conducive to the China market than they, it would in other markets. So, for example, in the case of China, you have users that um, tend to use their smartphones, but not credit cards. So it lends themselves it lends it lends the situation to one in which you have a easier transition to a cashless society. The other factor is that there has been an absence of regulation until more recently when it comes to financial technology. We also have seen, for example, that this concept of bundling, where you have different kinds of services within one app, not be as um, met with as much market demand outside of China as it has internally. So will WeChat be able to come to the U.S. and be a dominant service here? I think they're going to have some challenges. Um, that said, if you look at markets that might be more similar to China, developing markets in Southeast Asia um, or India, I think we're going to see companies like Alibaba and Tencent make a much stronger play there. You know, one thing that I'm looking at is Alibaba has opened cloud and data centers in places like Europe, as well as in other parts of Asia. Um, but they have a long way to go before they can really be competitive with companies like Amazon, like Microsoft. So just look at the global revenue. Alibaba Cloud now has about 3% of global market share, whereas Amazon is upwards of 40%. So certainly some challenges, but we'll keep watching. Are the companies that you've mentioned, Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, are they all encouraging this transition or this shift uh, to the digital economy over the more traditional economy? I mean, I, th I think that they are certainly focused on making it a more seamless part of people's lives. Um, and they're, they're at the forefront. I should say it's not even just the big three internet companies. You have a number of emerging players that are increasingly influential. So like the Chinese version of Uber is called Didi. Um, and they are making a, a, a real play for global markets going in direct competition with Uber and Lyft, for example. Um, you have a number of companies th that are um, that began as small startups and that are now you know, going global. So another example would be something called Musical.ly, which is a, Chi it, it's a Chinese, it was built by Chinese engineers in China, but it, has, it is used widely overseas by teenagers. It's sort of like a digital lip-syncing selfie video app, if that makes sense, where people record short videos of themselves singing into a microphone. But it's, it's a huge hit. I mean, I should say I've never actually personally used it. But this is another example of these sort of emerging companies that are now coming out and really shaping, I think, the way that globally people are interacting online. Let me remind you that you're listening to the Smart Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. I'm Beverly Kirk, and my guest is Sam Sachs. She's a senior fellow in the CSIS Technology Policy Program. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, at Smart Women, and you can follow Sam, at Sam Sachs, and let me spell that, S-A-M-M-S-A-C-K-S. -M -M -S and I noticed you're very active on Twitter. So I, I must confess, I didn't actually get on Twitter until four months ago when I joined CSIS. Um, and, uh, it's, and, and my husband said, Sam, you're at a think tank. You need to be on Twitter. And he laughs at me because he sees me composing and then deleting tweets. And he says, you're just, and I'm like, I'm like a mom on Twitter. I don't know what I'm doing. So I'm getting there. I'm getting there. That's the most important thing. And I would think with all of the technology issues that you research and write about, 
you would have to be on Twitter because that's part of your job, part of your work. Right. It's a great way to engage. And I've actually connected with colleagues through Twitter that I never would have connected with otherwise. So it's been a great way to exchange ideas. It it absolutely is. Well, we've been talking about China's digital economy, but I want to turn to the issue of cyber governance in China. Um, These issues are separate, but there is overlap. So can you talk about how they're impacting each other? And China has a new um, cyber governance law that went into effect in 2017. So if you could maybe give us some background about the law and then how it's impacting the digital economy. I see a a tension playing out in China where, and this is a, a tension that the government themselves acknowledges. They talk about the need to balance economic development with cybersecurity, and that these two things go hand in hand. Now, sometimes these things are, I think, are at odds with each other in China, just as they probably are in other places around the world. So you're seeing a tremendous growth in terms of the digital economy in China alongside a rapid development of new laws and regulations focused on cybersecurity, on enhancing the ability of the government to control and monitor emerging technologies, particularly focused in the um, information and communications technology sectors. Now, the cybersecurity law, which you mentioned, took effect in June of 2017. The cybersecurity law, I think of as the centerpiece of this effort, but it's really only one part. Um, I'm tracking dozens of different laws, measures and regulations, standards that are all part of a new governance system really for controlling information, data, networks online. Now, it can, we can get kind of in the weeds here, and I don't want to lose listeners by going down a rabbit hole of like this standard and this regulation. So I think that the most important thing to take away from this is The Chinese government recognizes that the growth of technology has gotten ahead of their ability to control it. And so the idea is to build out a new legal framework that really gives them new tools to do so. I think that it's the most expansive effort that exists anywhere in the world because you have these measures are fo- are focused not just on sort of traditional cybersecurity but they're also focused on industrial policy and developing China's sort of local industries in the ICT space it's focused on controlling the content of information online all under one mantle Um, And a lot of this system is still in flux. A lot of it's still in draft form, um, particularly the more controversial elements of it, where the government still is not sure how exactly they're going to implement it. And what are some of the more controversial elements in this law? I would say there are two that are – the first one is how data is controlled as it flows across borders. The second one is about how you define critical information infrastructure – So on the data issue, there is a provision in the law, it's Article 37, and it essentially says that data that falls um, under this definition of critical information infrastructure will need to be localized in mainland China. And if it's going to be sent across the border, it will need to undergo a security assessment. We still don't know what exactly the scope will be. So we don't know 
what kind of data is going to fall under this requirement. And it's being hotly debated right now. From the perspective of U.S. companies that are operating in China, this is highly problematic because um, it, it could mean building new data centers in China, which is very expensive. Um, for Chinese companies, it's also very problematic because I mentioned you have Chinese companies that are going abroad. You have transactions globally where data needs to be sent across borders. Um, and so I think we've seen a lot of heated discussion between the government and industry on this, and it's still unresolved. And I'm just thinking that the potential impact of that would would or has, has the potential to impact trade relationships. Uh, because if you're a company, if you're a, a non-Chinese company, I would think that you might object to someone else deciding what kind of data that has to be screened, for lack of a better term, before it could cross the border. Did I capture that? Did I Absolutely. Capture that correctly? And I'm glad that you brought that up because in the next couple weeks, we're expecting um, an announcement from the Trump administration to an ongoing investigation. Um, it's it's it, it's a report that will be issued under Section 301, um, and it's by USTR. And the idea is to look into how U.S. firms are being disadvantaged in the Chinese market. And I think that one of the main elements of this investigation will be restrictions on cross-border data flows. It's not the whole scope of it, but it's a really important one. The reason I bring this up is I think we're entering a period of increased trade tensions between the U.S. and China. So in addition to announcing the results of this 301 investigation, there also is is likely to be um, changes to what's called the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, which is the review mechanism that we use to evaluate the national security risks of, of certain types of investments. Um, in addition, we're seeing just a more confrontational approach to Beijing by the Trump administration. So all of this together is creating an environment of, an, of increased um, trade risk. And we could see some sort of tit-for-tat retaliation going back and forth between both sides over the next year. And I think that the high-tech sectors are going to be particularly impacted. Do you think that this will cause some of the U.S. companies in the high-tech sector to maybe hold back in terms of pursuing trade relationships with China or investing in in activities they already have set up in China? Well, I think that the dynamic playing out is that I think that U.S. companies, unfortunately, are going to be kind of collateral damage in this. You know, they are the ones that are probably going to be retaliated against by the Chinese government as the Trump administration comes out with some of these announcements. So I would say that it's not that this policy dynamic is going to impact their operations so much as what falls out of it. And what are some of the challenges that foreign tech companies face operating in China? It's a timely question, and it's one that U.S. policymakers are actively considering right now and of trying to develop responses to this. I think that foreign technology companies overall face three main risks when it comes to operations and regulation in China. The first is we see a trend towards localization in information and communications technology sectors in China. This means that the Chinese government has made very clear its goals to replace imports on certain core technologies and really bolster domestic companies. Um, we've seen most recently a statement come out in Beijing 
um, about increasing in what they call indigenous or indigenous and controllable technologies um, in ICT sectors. The second area that foreign tech companies are struggling has to do with restrictions on data, how data is stored, managed, and transferred across borders in China. The cybersecurity law, as it's stated now, um, does have provisions for data localization. It's still unclear what will actually fall in scope. But already a lot of companies are operating under the assumption that it will be extremely difficult to send data across borders. And as you can imagine, this would be hard for operations. The third area that foreign tech companies are struggling with has to do with security audits and testing. I'm tracking right now upwards of six different kinds of security reviews that companies are going to have to undergo under this new kind of regulatory regime. I know that uh, you mentioned the risk of a of the trade war. That's not necessarily something that is on. I think a lot of people's radar screens. Yeah, I think that's right. And I'm I'm hesitant to even bring up that term because it sounds sort of scary. Um, but I think we are moving into an environment where the Trump administration is preparing to um, announce measures that are going to put tremendous pressure on Beijing, and is is going to potentially lead to retaliation going back on both sides. So. Um, earlier in, in January, um, we heard that Huawei, which is one of China's major equipment makers, had announced plans to launch one of its high-end smartphones with AT&T here in the United States. Um, and it just and and this it looks like this is actually not going to go forward because of pressure likely from the U.S. government on the deal. There's been a lot of concerns about Huawei having links to the Chinese military. Huawei, in my view, has become kind of a scapegoat and a political flashpoint for these issues. I don't think that Huawei per se has any deeper connections to the Communist Party or the military than a lot of other Chinese companies, and it's just. That is the nature of the Chinese system. But I think that blocking this deal with Huawei and AT&T could be sort of the, um, the beginning of a much longer road on this. I think we're going to see some retaliation potentially the on the Chinese side. in a trade war? Yeah, potentially. And, and I hope it doesn't get to trade war. You know, I, I, I hope that that's not what we're going to see. I think both sides are going are gonna to try to be restrained. The Chinese in particular are kind of preparing for this and I think want to keep it proportional. But the risks are increasing. Well, as we wrap up here, what other issues in this space concern you? And what should the layperson listening to this podcast be watching for going going forward into 2018? Well, I think on the digital economy front, we're going to see more Chinese companies going global. And we're also going to see more U.S. companies looking to Chinese companies um, as examples for, for models they should incorporate here. So how are we using you know, payments on our smartphones, for example? I think we're going to see more influence going both ways. Um, in terms of cyber governance, as I said, it's not just the cybersecurity law that's going to be really important, but we could see some other new legislation coming out of China. So, for example, this year we could see a new law on personal information. Um, we also could see a new revision to a draft encryption law, which are going to be very impactful. So just remember the cyber governance system is still evolving in China, and there's a lot of issues unresolved. And lastly, I think that um, it's important also to sort of get outside of our Washington mindset on some of this stuff and, you know, talk to folks on the ground in China, use a smartphone in China and sort of see what that, that looks like. Sam Sachs, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much. You'll have to come back. 
Thanks so much for having me. And thank you for joining us. Remember to follow us on Twitter. I'm at Beverly Kirk, and we're at Smart Women. And you can follow Sam Sachs at Sam Sachs. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening. For more information, go to CSIS.org and subscribe to our podcasts.